Everyone, nice to see you all again. Um, you know, we're continuing to have very eventful times in our um, kind of bigger outer world. Um, so I think it, it's nice. It's nice and helpful for me, and I hope it's good, nice for you as well to take some time out and um, look at these philosophical texts and these philosophical ideas. Um, to kind of establish more of a of a ground, um, one of the one of the Buddhist schools that I've studied um, talks a lot about the mind ground. That's the metaphor that they use for stillness, the meditating on emptiness, getting in touch with non-dual awareness, non-conceptual awareness, and that I, that image that. Um, that evokes that evocative phrase, the mind ground, I think is nice to imagine how deep meditation is still and peaceful, um, unperturbed. And that's what these philosophical texts are um, helping lead us towards, help us discover for ourselves this kind of stability and imperturbability um, you know, one of the metaphors for Buddhist emptiness is the diamond. Uh, in in Sanskrit, that's vajra, and um, it means it. It doesn't mean diamond per se. It means more like adamantine or indestructible or something which is indivisible. Um, so we use the we use the metaphor of the diamond to get at that idea. But the the idea itself is is like a, a stability that can't be shaken something that's so hard that it cannot be broken into that so hard that it cannot be broken so stable that it cannot be disrupted um the the most indestructible thing ever so when as we're talking about emptiness um one of these metaphors for the experience of emptiness is the diamond the mind ground So we're taking a break from all of the activity to get in touch with that, get in touch with that approach to reality, that approach to experience, that mode of perception. I think that um, Buddhist refuge, as you know, we we begin every Buddhist teaching, every Buddhist practice with refuge. And I think refuge is also about Getting to something stable, something, um, you know, refuge means like something like shelter or protection. But in in um, the sort of deeper layers of Buddhist refuge, the, the only refuge we really have is our, our mind perceiving emptiness. Um, so this idea of emptiness is indestructible is, is tied into this idea of Buddhist refuge. When we're going for refuge to the Buddha, you know, the outer form of Buddha is the teacher, the, the, um, the scientist, although that is controversial to call Buddha a scientist, but nevertheless, um, 
He was someone who experimented with reality using his mind as the laboratory and made this great discovery of awakening, this great discovery of enlightenment. And so the outer form is is um, looking to this teacher as a source of guidance, as a source of inspiration. And that's the, the outer or, or more gross form of refuge in Buddha. But the, the inner or the more subtle refuge in Buddha is um, Buddha as as our own as our own mind, the potential for our own mind to rest in emptiness, to rest in a mode of perception that is not reactionary, that is not reactive, that is not being buffered about by experience and emotions and um, forces outside of our control. And even if those forces outside of our control are still we're still affected by them from the outer from the outside from the inside we're working with a mind that is imperturbable that is stable responding to whatever is is happening it doesn't react it responds and it responds from a place of stillness and clarity and wisdom rather than reacting from a place of emotionality and uh, a sense of a need to protect ourselves because we feel separate from the world, because we have this dualistic, this dualistic habit of perceiving myself and the world that I'm in as separate things, um, the outer world seems dangerous because I only experience my own body, my own, everything that I know of as me is this body, this mind. And so the outer world is full of all of these dangers. But that's, from the Buddhist point of view, that's an error in thinking, that everything is interconnected, everything is interrelated. And my personality, my identity, is in a basic way not different from yours or any other being in the cosmos. And that's the, that's the perspective of the Buddha. That's the perspective of the awakened mind. And so when we take when we go for refuge in Buddha, we're going for refuge in this idea that that mind is accessible for us as well, that we can seek comfort and safety and shelter and real protection from the awakened mind, which is accessible to us. And we go for refuge to the Dharma. The outer form of the Dharma is the teachings, the texts like the Heart Sutra that we're looking at here and all of the other Buddhist texts, um, the the oral traditions, the lineages that have been handed down from practitioner to practitioner, from teacher to student for 2,500 years or countless eons, depending on your perspective. The, the outer form of the Dharma is the, t the teachings, and we can take refuge in those in that we can use the teachings. They're accessible to us. They give us practices that we can apply in our lives. The inner form of the Dharma is that those teachings are leading us to um, emptiness. Um, remember, we were talking last week about sarva dharma, all dharmas, and we were talking about some of the sort of complexities of the word dharma because it means different things in different contexts. And one of the meanings of the dharma is truth, like capital T truth. And capital T truth is uh, is the the um, the perspective of emptiness, the perspective of of um, total interconnection of interconnection and interconnectedness of all things. 
And so when we go for refuge in the Dharma, we go for refuge in the Buddha Dharma, the literature and the lineages, but we also go for refuge to this idea that ultimate reality, that there is an ultimate reality. There's a reality beyond our senses, the limitations of our senses. And, and when we have glimpses of that, as we all have, um, those are the moments that we feel peaceful and stable and, and not fearful. And the teachings on emptiness, the Dharma and the sense of the teachings are to lead us to those moments of imperturbability and to learn how to expand those moments and to spend more time in those moments, to go deeper into the, to the experiences of emptiness that, that, are, that are accessible at all times. Emptiness isn't something that we create or overlay. It's when we stop making an error, an error of, of habitually seeing our perception as, as accurate, or mistaking our perception for the real world. So when we go for refuge in the Dharma, we're also having this, this stability, this safety, this protection of knowing that emptiness is the ground beneath our feet, so to speak. And the third uh, of the three jewels that we go for refuge to um, is the Sangha. And Sangha means a community. Um, and, the, and so that the Sangha is that we have people in our life who we can, who can, who support us and who we can depend on and who we can reach out to. And that's sort of the outer form of the Sangha, uh, as well as our teachers and the lineages, um, even though those people aren't all present with us uh, alive today, we nevertheless have the benefit of great teachers. Um, and the, so the outer form of the Sangha that we go for refuge is, is that we have people who have brought the teachings to us. We have people in our lives who are supporting us in our practice. We have friends, spiritual friends. Um, Kalyana Mitra is the Sanskrit word for um, wise friends, spiritual friends. Um, I like that word Kalyana Mitra because it's, it's sort of a Sanskrit word for a spiritual teacher, but it, it means friend. It doesn't mean um, master um, or lord or, you know, that there's a hierarchical relationship between me and my teacher, but that they're someone who's on my side and looking out for me and who wants to see me succeed. Um, and the reverse is true, that I'm a Kalyanamitra to them as well. It's this mutual relationship of like holding hands as we walk along the path to awakening. But the inner form of the Sangha the deeper form of the Sangha is that there are enlightened beings pervading the universe, that we're in this position of being humans striving towards this goal of, of awakening, of Buddhahood, and we look towards the historical Buddha as a human being who did that. But from the perspective of emptiness, there are countless enlightened beings um, that, they pervade, that they pervade the universe. Um, in the the Lotus Sutra, is has some really far out cosmic explanations of the awakened universe that pervades us, and they say that within every dust moat is a, a Buddha universe, and that in every pore of our skin is a Buddha universe. And so here we are, these or, seemingly ordinary beings who perceive ourselves as some saric suffering. Um, 
beings with all of these problems in our lives, but according to the Lotus Sutra, every pore of our skin is packed to the brim with, with enlightened beings, that the entire universe is overflowing with infinite Buddhas, like there's more of them than there are of us. So we take refuge in that, this idea that we're in, that the world that we're in, the universe that we're in is already perfect. And that it's only our habits of thinking that are giving us the impression that it's not perfect. Um, so that sangha that we go for refuge to is this idea that there's like this, that the that the very air we breathe is pregnant with the enlightened beings that pervade the entire universe. That it's that close, you know, that that we're just like packed to the brim with enlightened beings. And, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a Buddhist practice of pretending that I'm the only one who's not enlightened, that I'm the last one. And everybody else in my life is, is there to teach me something, is there, to, is there for the, the perfect, to provide the perfect teaching to move me towards my enlightenment. And that's a cosmic scope, you know, of gajillions of years that's beyond my comprehension. And so I don't know, I can't understand from my minor dualistic perspective that's primarily concerned about where my next meal is coming from and staying warm through the night. Uh, I don't have the perspective to see how there are countless enlightened beings hanging out uh, everywhere, coaxing me along, doing just what I need to coax me along. And holding that perspective, the reason that that's a spiritual practice is because holding that perspective that everyone else is already enlightened and it's just my little misunderstanding of ignorance and selfishness that prevents me from seeing them as enlightened is um, it's very close to actually being enlightened that there's just there's just like one little there's one little like mistake in our perception that's preventing us from experiencing the awakened world the enlightened buddhaverse that we're already in and it's just a question of it's a subtle but it's an extremely pervasive error which is why we have to practice but if we can hone in on where that like minor perceptual flaw is, that flaw of selfishness, that flaw of, of um, mistaking subjectivity for objectivity, uh, and just like tweaking the lens a little bit is all that it takes to experience Buddhahood. And that's the, the second thing that we do when we start a Buddhist teaching, a Buddhist practice is um, um, setting the correct motivation, uh, and the and in in Buddhism the correct motivation is bodhicitta, self uh, selflessness, um, selflessness in the sense of um, making efforts on behalf of others, because of course there's selflessness in the sense of um, the lack of a svabhava, um, in the emptiness sense. That's a little uh, kind of a slip up in English language because. I'm using the word selflessness to mean working on behalf of others, but selflessness also can mean that that um, shunya svabhava, the the empty the emptiness of self nature. Um, anyway, the 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 reason that motivation is so important is because that that subtle flaw of self cherishing, of selfishness, of mistaking subjectivity for objectivity. And um, being attached to this idea that I'm that me me is me and everything else is not me. Um, 
that error is overcome by thinking and acting for the welfare of others. So we talk a lot about the importance of compassion in Buddhism, especially Mahayana Buddhism, but, um, but all forms of Buddhism have a great deal of kindness and compassion baked in, built in. Um, but the reason compassion is so crucial to bodhicitta is, it, is it's, about, it's about overcoming our habits of self-cherishing, overcoming our habits of thinking of me as more important. And that has the, a technical function in, in enlightenment, in, in the process of awakening, because from the Buddha's perspective, all beings are equal. All beings are equally valid, equally deserving of love. Um, equally deserving of and receiving teachings. And the way for us to emulate that is to practice practice that. We practice seeing that other people are important. We practice seeing that other that all pe- beings are equally important in the in the four infinite truths, the four the four immeasurables. The um, the fourth one is equanimity, and equanimity doesn't mean to be neutral. Equanimity means to increase our capacity of love and compassion and kindness for others. So that's our that's our motivation. Our motivation is compassion compassion oriented towards awakening. So I think it's important for us to to um to keep the keep clear and uh and stay focused on refuge and motivation, refuge and bodhicitta, because they are, they themselves are really the, in some ways they're the totality of the Buddhist practice, just refuge and bodhicitta. Those things alone, unpacked sufficiently and, and kept at the forefront of our awareness, is, uh, is itself a complete Buddhist practice. Now, obviously, Buddhism has a great deal, deal of philosophy as well, um, philosophical systems and philosophical teachings, and you know we're looking at a one of the most famous philosophical texts of Buddhism, the Heart Sutra. Um, so of course, there's plenty to talk about in the meantime. Even though we could just perhaps go for refuge and cultivate bodhicitta and just do that. But um, in the meantime, we have lots of uh, we have lots of literature to read and lots of uh, philosophy to study and lots of stuff to do. So we are in the fourth class on the on the um, Heart Sutra, Prajna Paramita Hridaya Sutram, the heart of the perfection of wisdom sutra. And um, as we've talked about before, perfection of wisdom is a corpus, a genre of Buddhist literature. That's focused on em- emptiness, um, focused on um, diving deep into what it means to to talk about non-duality or the lack of self-nature, or how all phenomena are empty, um, how all dharmas are empty, uh, have the mark of emptiness, as we also talked about last week. Um, so the. The idea of Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom, is transcendent wisdom. So we're not talking, um, we're using discursive wisdom, intellectual wisdom, um, thinking about things with our, with our conscious awareness in order to interrupt the process of thinking. 
Um, and that's the transcendent wisdom. So we still have, dual, we're using the dualistic wisdom, which is prajna, to get to the perfection of wisdom, prajna paramita, which is non-discursive wisdom, transcendent wisdom. So we would make this distinction between conceptual wisdom and non-conceptual wisdom. Non-conceptual wisdom is experiencing reality without, a, without an overlay, without a perceptual overlay of naming and labeling and having that kind of internal narration, telling ourselves a story about what we're experiencing, um, constantly judging things. Um, Non-conceptual wisdom interrupts all of that process, which is to say that there is a form of consciousness, there is a form of awareness that is not, that is, that is without content, consciousness without content. Or if there is content, we would have to experience that to know what that is. But it's non-dual. It's, non it's a form of consciousness in which there is not a disruption between the subject and the object. So in a way, maybe we could say that the subject and object are perceiving themselves as, as, in, as purely interrelated and, and not existing in any other way than being interrelated. So the, the verse that we studied last week was, um, had, a, quite a bit of, um, had, had quite a bit to say about this. Um, in Sanskrit, this is where we are in the text. Iha Shariputra Rupam Shunyata Shunyataiva Rupam Rupa Napritak Shunyata Shunyataya Napritak Rupam Yadrupam Sa Shunyata Ya Shunyata Tadrupam Eva Meva Vedana Samjnya Samskara Vijnanam Iha Shariputra Sarva Dharmaha Shunyata Lakshana Anutpanna Aniruda Amala Avimala Anuna Aparipurnaha so this is um, how the text defines emptiness. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness, emptiness is not other than form. Whatever is form, that is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness, that is form. Sarva Dharma, all, all phenomena have the defining characteristic of emptiness. This is true of form, our physical body. Oh, um, oh, it is not born, it is not destroyed. It is not impure, it is not pure. It is not deficient, and it is not perfect. And this is true not just of form, but all of the aspects of consciousness. Sensation, perception, um, volition or impulses, and uh, consciousness itself. So that was what we got into in quite a bit of deal, detail last week. Um, so all phenomena are not produced and not destroyed. We, this is, again, the, one of the things that's challenging about this text, as I've mentioned several times, is that it is a philosophical attack on what was previously the sacrosanct Buddhist philosophy. Um, <clears throat> One of those one of those characteristics is that um, that things arise, they last for a little while, and they disappear. Um, that's how phenomena are, right? One of the ways of one of the meanings, the sort of 
earlier definitions of emptiness is that things are impermanent. Things arise, they last for a while, and they disappear. They fade away. It's true of, it's true of our experiences. It's true of time. Certainly, that's our moment-to-moment experience of time. That's our experience of our possessions. It's, it's the experience of our bodies. It's the experience of our relationships. But in Prajnaparamita, it challenges that idea. It says things are not born, not produced, and not destroyed. They don't arise, and they don't go away. They are neither created nor destroyed. Um, another distinction that was present in early Buddhism was that there was impure things and pure things. And we focus on, on pure things and avoid impure things. And this is particularly true in the, um, the sort of Brahmanic and Vedic traditions that were also um, around in the same time of Buddha's teachings. Um, ritual purity was extremely important. And in, um, in um, Prajnaparamita, on the perfection of wisdom, it's saying pure impure is a false dichotomy. There's no, such things, there's no such thing as things that are impure and no such thing as things that are pure. Neither of those are, are, are real. Anuna aparipurnaha, things are not deficient and they're also not perfect. So nothing is lacking. Nothing is missing anything that could make it better. But also nothing is perfect or complete or fully created, fully completed. So emptiness is taking the very, this idea that it's attacking this very idea that we can create dichotomies. It's, it's really pointing here to this, um, to this notion that categorical thinking is itself an error, that we are creating and applying categories, but, and then mistaking those categories for self-existent things, things that have uh, some kind of real substantial existence. That was why the, the text starts with form, right? Form is, in, a, in some ways, it's the most obvious. If you're going to um, attack a category that people think of as self-existent, form would be a great place to start because we, we unequivocally experience form as existing. Like that's almost what we mean when we say something exists. We mean it has form. It has substantiality. You know, I exist because I experience my body as existing. I experience my favorite teacup as existing because I can feel it in my hand. I can taste the tea when I drink it. I know it. I know that it exists. But Prajnaparamita, perfection of wisdom, is saying that those are just categories that I'm applying to a flow of experience, and maybe even the experience itself is empty, which I think we we'll get into a little bit in the text shortly. So um, if it's not clear enough, um, the text goes on. Um, Avalokiteshvara, our interlocutor, remember it's, it's worth repeating that the, um, this is the only Buddha Sutra in which it's not Gautama Buddha who's doing the teaching, but it's his, one of his um, close disciples. I was going to say henchmen, but that's not the right word. They're not henchmen. Um, the uh, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Um, so in Buddhism, there's Buddhism is often talked of talked about as having two wings, 
the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. And so Prajnaparamita is the wing of wisdom. But in this sutra, it's being taught by the Buddha of, or the Bodhisattva of compassion. And so I think one of the most potent messages in this sutra, of which there are many potent messages, one of the most potent is that wisdom is coming from the mouth of compassion. Wisdom emerges from compassion. Wisdom only comes, only takes voice, only takes meaning, only exists, only emerges when it's embodied or, or um, emerging from compassion. This profound compassion. Remember, we talked quite a bit about Avalokiteshvara in the first class. As Avalokiteshvara's name is this evocative image of one who can hear the suffering of all of the beings and their heart is breaking with compassion and they have this drive to do everything that they can to help others. And that's the perspective from which the teachings on emptiness emerge. So um, Avalokiteshvara, having told us that um, form is emptiness and emptiness is form and so on, and telling us all that, telling us also that all phenomena are have the characteristic mark of emptiness. Um, he goes on to tell us unambiguously, un, um, um, I'll read the Sanskrit, tasma chariputra shunyatayam na rupam na vedana na samjna na samskara na vijnanam. Therefore, Shariputra, in emptiness, there is no form, there is no sensation, there is no perception, there are no mental formations or volition, and there is no consciousness. So he's, uh, um, he's getting right at what Buddhists, pri what early Buddhists prior to the Mahayana, prior to Prajnaparamita, which is, again, debatably is a later philosophical development in Buddhism, although it's also, you could say, um, a hidden thread throughout Buddha's early teachings, um, and it emerges as a philosophical thread later. Um, the early Buddhists would have thought that there is no self, there is no svabhava, the, or, or rather an Atman. The early Buddhist talk, texts talk about the Atman, which is sort of this idea of a soul. There is no soul, rather you are these these sort of functions working in concert, the function of form, the function of sensation, basic sensory experience, um, the function of perception, the ability to um, see and smell and taste and hear and touch objects, the ability to use your mind. Um, mental formations, the karmic volitions that drive your experiences, and then consciousness, the capacity to put all of that together and make distinctions between things then you would say all of these things are sort of working together and then the selfness, the Atman, the, the idea of a, of a self is sort of emerges from this, this sort of elaborate flow or this concert of functions. Um, so for the Heart Sutra to say that these things simply don't exist is, um, would, become, would be quite a shock to um, 
the to many of the Buddhists in the the audience at um, Vulture Peak where this teaching was given. He goes on to say, Nachakshuhu shrota grana jiva kaya manamsi. There is no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, and no mind. Um, if you're if you're into the Sanskrit, um, chakshu is eye, shrota is ear, grana is nose, jiva is tongue, and kaya is body. It means literally trunk of a tree, but it's a euphemism for the body. So we we don't have these things. Sorry to break it to you, but there is no eye, no ears, no tongue, no body, and no mind. Narupa, Shabda, Ganda, Rasa, Sprashtavya, Dharmaha. There is no Rupa form, Shabda, sound, Ganda, smells, Rasa, taste, Sprashta, um, thing, objects of touch, things that you can touch. And dharmas, again, in this case, dharmas means objects of mind, things that you perceive. Um, yet another definition or another way of using the word dharma. But in this case, it means objects of mind, things that, you're, things that exist in your consciousness only. He goes on to say, Na chakshur datur yava na mano vijnana datuhu. There is no I element. This is a little tricky. Um, datu means element. Um, no I element up and through no mind element. Um, so this is worth unpacking a little bit because this is one of those things that um, these, these three lines about the sense organs, the sense objects, and the sense elements as this is being translated datu um, this is uh, important in Buddhism, so that's why in, in early Buddhism especially, that's why they're being mentioned here um, specifically. Um, so within those, the five skandhas that, we, that I talked about earlier, right, the um, form, sensation, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, um, those are all w working because of the relationship between the eye organ, the, the sense organ, the sense object, and the sense consciousnesses. And so um, in emptiness, or in, in early Buddhist sort of um, perceptual psychology, I guess you could call it, um, in, early, in early Buddhist perceptual psychology, you, you would say that there are the there are no sense objects without sense organs to perceive them. There is no object that exists unless it is being perceived to exist. And it's being perceived to exist not by the eye organ, because the eye organ only receives, you know, photonic energy as it hits your eyeball. But the sense consciousness is what is able to use the information that the sense organ receives. 
So these are called the 18 datus. There's six sense objects, six sense organs, and six sense consciousnesses. And these are, again, a way of saying what we think of as our experience, what we're compiling in our mind as our experience, is actually this flow um, of this flow and this interrelationship of the of the sensory apparatus. So the the eye, for example, is perceiving light, um, but the light that it's perceiving exists because it's being perceived. Or in other words, there's no there, you can't say in any meaningful way that there's that there's an eye object unless it's being perceived. And, the, and so that's why the eye consciousness is so important. An eye organ that's not connected to an eye consciousness is, not, is also not a perceiving, is also not perceiving thing. It's not part of the perceptual apparatus. So the eye organ is insufficient for perception. The object, the, the visible object, is not sufficient for perception. And this, the, the consciousness that's capable of seeing that's capable of perceiving visual, visible objects is insufficient for perception. All three of these things must be working in concert. So this is one of the sort of logical proofs for emptiness, is that we can't say that there is a visible object unless it's being perceived. We can't say that there is... <clears throat> We can't say that there's sound unless there's someone who's hearing the sound. <coughs> um, and this is a basic way of describing the process of perception within a, um, a Buddhist framework for how consciousness is working. <coughs> and it, I mean, it's counterintuitive because of the seeming svabhava of objects. Like, for example, you can use your imagination to see where you parked your car, or you can use your imagination to see what's in your fridge right now. But in uh, from the perspective of Buddhist emptiness, those things are only existing for you when you're perceiving them. So you can perceive them as a mental object, right? That's what is being used as dharma in this line. Na rupa shabda ganda rasa sprashtavya dharmaha. In this case, dharma means an object of mind. So the things in your fridge perceive are, exist to some degree when you conjure them in your imagination. But you can, you can admit that they exist differently when you open your fridge and you see them. They exist differently when you take them out and you can feel the object in your hand. They exist differently when you take a drink and you can taste something and you can feel if it's cold or warm. But when you're not perceiving it in that way, it's not existing for you. Maybe somebody else is in your fridge right now and they're perceiving the objects of your fridge with their with their eye organ and their sense con and their other sense consciousnesses, but they're but you're not perceiving it the way that they're perceiving it. And so this is an this is a, a logical proof for emptiness because 
the things only exist for us based on our perception of them. And the process of perception is itself a con is a confluence of factors and forces. This is why the text use it, um, goes through the skandhas first, right? The sensation is the basic capacity for having sensory experiences. Um, sensation is when we make initial contact with something and that's the level of these um, that's the capacity for perception and then the next one is perception itself which is when the sense organs the sense objects and the sense consciousnesses actually come together and we perceive something as blue or red and this is before we've applied the label of blue or red or whatever it happens to be cold or warm if it's touch um, sweet or salty or sour if, if it's taste we haven't applied the label to them but nevertheless there are existing in our sense consciousnesses so this is one of the things that's important to make a distinction between the sense consciousness and the mind consciousness the sense consciousness is able to perceive raw data but it's only when the mind consciousness gets engaged that we have uh, a name or a label or a concept that's being imposed this is a big part of what Buddhism is asking us to do is to slow down our process of perception and notice how things are are actually built up through a series of of, of uh, perceptual factors they seem to us that they just exist self-existently that's the svabhava that emptiness is attempting to negate they seem to us to have a self-nature but actually there's this whole capacity of for perception that is necessary for our, our mind to go through the sequence in order for us to say, oh, this is a glass of tea. I can only perceive this glass of tea because I have the because there's the physical object, but also because I have the basic capacity for sense for sensation, because my sense organs and my uh, because all of my sense organs are working properly as well, and the sense objects actually exist. And my sense consciousnesses are online because I can have sense organs and sense objects, but I can be unconscious and not perceive things. I could be um, I could be uh, anesthetized, and my sense organs would technically still be working, but would I be but I wouldn't necessarily be perceiving things. So all of these things are online; they're making contact. Um, I have the volition to experience the world that the way that I do meaning that I'm not a dog or an ant or a microbe or a bird or something that would perceive these very same, these, they would still have the sense organs and the sense objects and the sense consciousnesses, but they would have the, imp the imprints and the impressions to experience the world differently, right? This is samskara, which we'll come back to in the 12 links of dependent origination. And then my consciousness is online, so I can compile all of that together to say cup of tea. And so, but I, the svabhava of the cup of tea is that I, it's just here. And when I go and leave the room, my cup of tea is still sitting on the table. When I come back into the room, that's the habits of perception. That's the habits of seeing things as self-existent, as having the svabhava. But what Prajnaparamita is asking us to do is say, look, there's actually all of these discrete things that you are compiling together to form 
your experience. And Prajnaparamita is going one step further to say those things all actually don't exist. Those things are those things themselves are categories that you're imposing. So the very idea of eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body and mind are conceptual are conceptual overlays, are perceptual overlays. The idea that there are um, form, sounds, smells, tastes, and object, objects of touch, those are conceptual overlays. In, in, and this, the text is, is quite direct in saying there is no form, there is no sound, there are no smells, there are no tastes, there are no objects of touch, there are no thoughts. There, um, there is no I perceptual faculty all the way up through the mind consciousness. So this is um, a, it's asking us to stretch what we, stretch our capacity for what we think reality is like. Um, it's challenging us to fundamentally view the world as, as something different than what we're habitually seeing it as. Um, it's asking us to go into a form of consciousness in which the perception is perception is not being compiled in this way. I don't know if we can I mean I, I don't know if we can say that there's no perception in emptiness, but it's a fundamentally different type of perception. Um, you know, Buddhas aren't inert. They're not living in a, a void of empty space, um, which Buddhism has beings that are like that, the beings that live in the, in the forms and formless realms, you know, sort of forms of, uh, they're sort of um, kind of godlike realms where there are very, where the senses are very different and where beings can live for a long time without any stillness, without anything uh, impinging on their consciousness, without any objects impinging on their consciousness. And Buddhism warns that these types of uh, realms are dangerous because they can seem a lot like what we think nirvana should be, right? We think nirvana should be like, oh, I'm just like complete, like floating in outer space with nothing, with nothing impinging on me. Um, but Buddhist emptiness is saying is still saying that there's some kind of consciousness that's happening. There's still some kind of awareness that's happening. But how does it work if there's if we interrupt this idea that our sense organs and the sense objects that they're perceiving are um, are are really there? We're thinking we're constantly perceiving them as self-existent, but in from the perspective of Prajnaparamita, from the perspective of emptiness. These things are, are categories. They're things that were they're, they're impositions that we're putting on things. Okay, I don't mean to belabor the point, um, but it's one of these things in Buddhism that we kind of have to go over and over and over again philosophically so that we can trust our meditation practice enough to actually get into these into these spaces into these states. That's why I have the the um, stages of the stages of meditation poster behind me, um, which talks about how to get go from our 
busy, agitated mind and then gradually move into more and more still stages of meditation. And um, according to this model, we have to work our way up here so that we can have the stability of consciousness to be able to perceive emptiness and stay stabilized in the perception of emptiness. Sometimes I wonder, you know, because this philosophical stuff can seem abstract at times, and um, especially emptiness, because we've got we're like banding around all these technical terms and sort of, you know, making these audacious claims that our eyes and nose and ears and tongue and body don't exist, which I'm pretty sure they do because I'm that's how I'm here right now. So. I'm I'm much more confident that they do exist than that they don't exist based on my experience versus what a Sanskrit text is telling me that my senses are are not real. I'm not I'm not necessarily going to take the text at face value because it's telling me that my experience isn't happening. And then I kind of wonder like this all feels sort of abstract and kind of a a vanity project or an anti-vanity project, I guess, as the case is here. But um, when I when I start to think that way, I I then kind of reflect on why am I studying Buddhism? Why am I attracted to Buddhism and yoga philosophy? Um, why am I so interested in the Heart Sutra that I spend a lot of time studying it and thinking about it? Um, and not just because somebody told me that it was a spiritual classic and I should, and I should, um, but like, what's my, what's my actual motivation? And, and I just, and it, and it comes back to, this is the thing that I love about Buddhism is it's prag- pragmatism. Um, I come back to that. I'm looking for practical tools that I can use to help have a better experience. Um, Uh, you know, the first noble truth, which is actually in this text, but later on, so maybe I should save this for later, but I'm not going to. Um, The first noble truth is that, that the unawakened life is suffering. And, you know, that sounds kind of depressing, but the thing is, like, that's, you can't really argue, like, I I can't really argue with that. I can't disagree with that. Um, And, in Buddhism, it's a you know the the teachings are to like get really clear on that, so that you can make good decisions about how you're using your life, that your your finite life. Um, and so the the teachings on emptiness I find helpful because they they help me get out of my own habit of thinking that my perspective is is the only way things could be. Um, Maybe I'm not ready to, you know, hang out in pure emptiness, but I am ready to start seeing how my habits are creating my problems. And in fact, the people who seem to me to be creating the problems in my life, that's my habit too. Um, It's not to say that those people aren't doing harmful things. But it's all. But it is to say that I can choose how I react to them. I can learn how to choose how I react to them. There's a bit of a I, there's a bit of a spiritual bypassing problem of just saying, oh well, bad things happen, but we can choose how to react to them. 
but we can't choose how to react to them unless we learn how to react to them. Learn to choose how to react to them. Um, and emptiness is a is a. I have found that emptiness is a really powerful tool for developing that facility, to be able to say, wait, this thing seems like it's self-existent, but I have all of these ways of deconstructing it. Um, I have all of these ways of sort of doing this meta-analysis on my perception and looking at how much of this is my reaction, how much of this is my habitual ways of looking at things, how much of this is, how much of this, like, I mean, as painful as it is, I have, you know, have to look at the ways in which I have set up the conditions for some of the terrible things that that have happened to me in my life. And it seems like I'm just getting hit by a bus, but the reality is that I contributed to those things in a lot of ways. And that gives me the ability to take a step back, take a deep breath, and then look more closely at how I can make different choices. Um, And so meditating on emptiness is like, you know, turning it up to 11 and saying, well, actually nothing that you think exists, exists. And then starting at that kind of extreme place, I can can work back to, to levels of that that I can accept and then kind of work forward to to think more broadly about why is this text telling me? Why is this text telling me that I have no eye, no ears, no, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind? Why is it telling me that? And, you know, we have pretty awesome tools from, from our own culture that really validate this. If we start, like, you know, go read a book on, on physics that talks about relativity and quantum mechanics and... and uh, it doesn't take very long to realize that, you know, the, the world that I have the capability of perceiving is not really what's going on. Um, and the range of what's available, like just the, just the range of light that's visible to my eye, what I can see compared to what I can't see just in what's going on, just in the electromagnetic spectrum that's right in front of me all the time. That... Um, you know, I feel like Heart Sutra is very contemporary in that way. You know, it it speaks directly to these kinds of, you know, it speaks directly to what is actually happening, even if it's not conventionally what's happening. That's what Prajnaparamita is trying to get us to, is like what we, what the conventional world is to us is not the world that's really going on. And we can learn how to shift our consciousness, shift our capabilities of perception to be open to a broader range of experience up to and including the point where we no longer perceive ourselves as a, as a body, where we no longer perceive ourselves as limited by our six senses. So I can find a way to use emptiness to get started with a level that I can understand, like my habits are conditioning the way that I see the world and work up to there's an entire there's an entire level of reality that is beyond my perception up to nobody is everybody's perception is flawed because it's subjective and that there's a reality that's that exists independently of everyone's individual take on things everyone's individual lens on what's going on what's what's reality when when you take it outside of the perception of anybody. And so emptiness, 
you know, one of the mistakes of emptiness is to mistake it for voidness or, I mean, that's one of the translations for emptiness, right? Voidness sounds like deep space, you know, but emptiness isn't saying that there's nothing there. It's saying that the self-nature that we are constantly imposing habitually, automatically, unquestioningly, the, the seemingly un, uh, undeniable reality of things is merely perceptual. It's merely an, uh, a perspective. And not only is it a perspective, but the perceptual apparatus itself is also limited, a limited way of thinking about things, a limited way of categorizing our world. And we can begin to think about what the world, the, the world in quotes, is like outside of that perceptual framework that we are confined to because of our habits of perception. And I find that useful. I find that helpful. Okay, the next line of the text. Um, now we're getting into a new topic. Um, <clears throat> and um, again, it's re referencing... Um, okay, I'll just read the line and then we'll get into it. Navidya navidyakshayo yavana jara maranam najara maranakshayaha. Um, this is one of the this is one of those phrases in which it sort of glosses over the word yavan is uh, the word yavan in this sentence means and so forth or um, up to and including. Um, so the first word is avidya, which is ignorance, and the last word um, jara maranam means old age and death. Jara means old age and marana means death. And they're a compound, I mean, where, where it's the and is implied, old age and death. So jara maranam is a word that means old age and death. It's one word, but it means old age and death. So it says ignorance up to and including old age and death. And the text assumes that you're very familiar with the 12 links of interdependent origination. Um, and now that I'm talking, I realize that I should have created a visual aid for the 12 links of dependent origination. Um, but if you're on the computer, you can Google it and find a, a visual aid right now. Um, and um, then you can see the, um, see the 12 links. Um, the reason the 12 links are interesting, so, 12 links of interdependent origination. This is a crucial concept in, especially in early Buddhism, but it's really prevalent throughout all Buddhism. And the 12 links are a series of micro moments of how we move from, um, how basically we create the world in a moment to moment way. The 12 links also describes the arc of a lifetime um, and, and some people orient, you know, some teachings, I should say, orient more towards that viewpoint of the 12 links. But, they, um, but they're really describing this moment-to-moment, micro-moment-to-micro-moment process for how the world is emerging for us. It's a description of, it's, an, it's yet another description of perceptual psychology or 
um, or how we go from encountering uh, how we go from encountering something, how our mind works. Really, it doesn't. It's not really talking about how we encounter things. It's talking about how our mind is working. So the twelve links are um, the first of them is ignorance, and the last one is old age and death. And the text is glossing over the other ten, assuming that you know what they are. Um, so I think this it's worth going into them because it's such an important idea in um, in Buddhism. And you'll and pretty much wherever you go in Buddhism, you'll hear people talking about the twelve links of interdependent origination, or they'll t- they're they're talking about interdependence. And often interdependence is used as a technical term in Buddhism to relate back to the 12 links. So the 12 links are, um, I'm going to list them and then we'll go into each one and talk a little bit about the Sanskrit. Um, The 12 links are ignorance, volitions, rebirth consciousness or consciousness. The fourth is name and form. Five is six sense spheres. Six is contact, seven is feeling, eight is craving, nine is clinging, ten becoming, eleven birth, twelve old age and death, or decay and death. Another word for jara means decay. So um, we often are talking about old age and death as one of the main kinds of suffering in Buddhism. Old age is one of the main kinds of suffering in Buddhism. But old age really means decay. It means how things are slowing down and breaking down. So the origin of the 12 links, the first of the 12 links is avidya, ignorance. Um, vidya means knowing, and avidya is a negation, not knowing. Um, Ignorance itself is an interesting term because it, we, it, it can mean to be unaware of something, but also often in Buddhism it can mean um, to know things but be wrong about them. So when we're talking about like the svabhava, avidya is seeing things as self-existent, seeing things as having a self-nature. We know, I know for sure that the teacup has a svabhava and my evidence is that I'm experiencing it, but avidya would say that I'm misknowing the object. I'm my my faith that the that the teacup, my it's not even faith, right? It's it's like my visceral, unquestioned moment to moment experience of the teacup as having a self nature, is a misunderstanding of how reality is really working. And so that avidya, that basic ignorance, is what underlines everything, underlies everything else in Buddhism. Um, in, another way of talking about this is that the three poisons in Buddhism, as they're called, are um, craving, aversion, and ignorance. And craving and aversion are both underpinned by ignorance. So in some ways, there's really only one problem in Buddhism, which is, which is ignorance. And then ignorance, from ignorance comes the two main problems, craving and, and aversion. So ignorance is what's driving volitions. And volitions is the same word as we saw in the five skandhas, samskara. And so this is the fourth of the five skandhas. 
And volition is again a word that is interesting. It's interesting to call it to to use the English word volition because the English word volition is related to like will and and intention. Volition is something that sounds intentional in English. Like I'm doing something when I when I do something, it's because I have a volition to do something. But in the in Buddhism and in the Twelve Links. Um, volition is really related to karma. So karma is the process by which our experiences are emerging. Um, karma is everything. Is, karma is what's creating everything that we experience. It's creating our perception of the things that we experience. It's creating our reactions to the things that we experience. <clears throat> And under and what and volition is the sort of conscious the force in consciousness that's driving that. So volition is precognitive. It's even preconscious. So the third of the of the twelve links is consciousness, vijnana. Again, that's the fifth of the five skandhas. So here we have the the third link, vijnana. Or the, I'm sorry, the second link, samskara, is the fourth of the five skandhas, and vijnana, the third link, is the fifth of the five skandhas. So this gives us some clues, and if you're into like puzzle solving, um, it's it's a fun way to sort of try to map the twelve links onto the um, skandhas or or vice versa. Um, I've also had teachers discourage me from doing that and say, no, no, just take each system as its own and don't try to match the systems up. But I'm like, mm, no, I don't. In Buddhism, it does, they, there's no coincidences in Buddhism. You know, there's, It's not a coincidence that the same volition, the same samskara in the five skandhas is the same samskara in the 12 links. I don't think that's a coincidence. But um, I've heard multiple perspectives on that. So the third, consciousness, is the capacity to have consciousness. Conscious, this is consciousness pre-content consciousness. So this is how the mind is working before the mind is doing anything. Now the fourth of the 12 links is nama rupa, name and form. This is the capacity, this is the, the stage in consciousness when things become things. This is the moment at which this is the moment at which the teacup becomes the teacup and the cat becomes the cat and the car becomes the car and all of the different way all of the names and labels and everything how everything seems to us to have the svabhava that it is it's coming from the the this tendency to name and form Now the the fifth is the six sense spheres now, this is the 18 datus that we just went over. There's six sense spheres, and each sphere contains um, the sense object, the sense organ, and the sense consciousness. So there's six of those, which makes 18 in total, right? Six, um, six uh, sense organs, six sense objects, and six sense consciousnesses. Those are all together, uh, uh, sometimes called the 18 datus and also called the six sense spheres. So here we have, so so far we have this situation where 
everything is underlied by ignorance, a, a fundamental tendency to misknow or to misperceive. That ignorance is what drives volition. Volition is the basic impulse that is pushing all karma, all causation, all consciousness, all unawakened consciousness. It's being driven by volition, samskara. Volition is what drives consciousness. So it's this, it's this volition, this urge to... I'm just coming up with this, so forgive me. I didn't mean for it to rhyme. This urge to emerge... This urge to emerge is what drives consciousness. Consciousness drives this tendency to see things as objects, nama rupa, name and form. The tendency to see things as objects is what drives the, sen the whole sensory apparatus. So senses, in this, in this model, senses sense organs and sense objects come from the tendency to name and label and categorize. That one fact seems crucial to me because we're, our habit, our habit is to see things as going the other way around, right? Our habit is to say, well, my eye organ is accurately perceiving the visible object and then I apply the label to it. I see it as teacup and then I'm consciously perceiving it as teacup. But in um, this, the um, links of interdependence, it's happening the other way around. Consciousness is what drives the tendency to label things. The tendency to label things is what drives the sensory apparatus that's actually perceiving things. So at number six is where the sense objects and the sense organs actually come together. The sixth one is contact. Um, the Sanskrit word is sparsha, which means touch. Um, and so the six sense spheres, the sense object, the sense object, the sense organ, and the sense consciousness, they emerge and then at that moment there's contact between the sense object and the sense organ. The sense, the, the objects and the organs and the consciousnesses emerge and then there's contact. Then the seventh is feeling. This is Vedana. Vedana is also the um, second of the five skandhas. So this um, basic sensory experience, this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral sensory experience, which is the second of the five skandhas, appears in the 12 links as the moment after contact. So contact is the, 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 the sense object and the sense organ and the sense consciousness joining each other, meeting each other, emerging in concert co-coexisting and then there's the initial feeling pleasant unpleasant or neutral feeling goes into uh, craving so eight is craving and nine is clinging um, craving is not always positive right Cra this is craving and aversion so when we have it is the three poisons, ignorance, craving, and aversion, we have ignorance as the first step in the, in the 12 links. Then we have this like rapid fire sequence of volitions, consciousness, name and form, six sense spheres, contact, feeling. That all happens instantaneously from our perspective, from the level of perception that we have. That all happens instantaneously. And, and then we immediately go to craving.
um, in the in the um, Abhidharma system of Buddhism, the Abhidharma philosophical system, one of the objectives of meditation is to slow down this process so that you can watch all of these things happen. And one of the places where you have power is between craving and clinging. Because craving is this impulse that's like, okay, I either want that thing, either I want my tea, or it's a disgusting thing and I want it away from me. Either it's something that's desirable and I want it, or it's something that I don't want. And there's this impulse. That's craving. Clinging is when then I was is then when I attach and act on that craving. So this step between eight and nine, between craving and clinging, is one of the places where if our meditative stillness of our meditative concentration is clear and stable enough that we can watch these 12 links happening in our consciousness on a moment-to-moment basis, we can put a little wedge in between craving and clinging. We can say, oh, there's the impulse to want the thing, and I don't want it. I see the ice cream. I see the ice cream as a desirable object, but I know that it's not self-existently a desirable object. And I know that acting on it is what's going to continue to drive the 12 links of of dependent interrelation. dependent origination in this like ceasing flow and because i can catch the craving before it turns into clinging i can interrupt the process a little bit um now that's true in in i mean the emptiness i think helps us with that understanding but even prior to the prajnaparamita philosophical schools emerging and the abhidharma schools which are an earlier theravadan kind of metaphysical framework um, Abhidharma is r- ridiculously complex, um, but it's worth studying because it's quite interesting way of looking at the world, not necessarily to memorize everything, but at least to think think about how our consciousness, consciousness is working from the Abhidharma perspective. Um, they say that we can we can experience craving and then not experience clinging. But that requires being able to watch our mind moving at like a micro moment to micro moment level. Because clinging then, once we've like flipped over from craving to clinging, we have now pushed, we've restarted the cycle. It's, it's one of the things that I think is kind of interesting about the 12 links is that even though it starts with ignorance and it ends with death, the point where we have power over the system is between step eight and step nine so in a way step nine is what begins the next cycle and step eight is the last is the is the end of the next cycle but it's not the end of the next cycle unless we can you know put that wedge in we can put that magic dagger in between craving and clinging and stop the world turning because once we have clinging then we get to becoming bhava now this is an interesting term because bhava becoming is the same word that we've been using a lot, svabhava. At, by the time it's come to bhava, the object seen it, by now we have perceived the object as self-existently, independently, um, having a nature of the desirable or the undesirable object. We have already glommed our identity onto it. We've already said, okay, this is the thing I want. I'm going to eat the ice cream because the ice cream is self-existently good. Or I'm not going to eat the ice cream because the ice cream is self-existently bad. We shouldn't assume that everybody thinks ice cream is self-existently good. 
It might be a safe assumption, but I'm not sure. So bhava is becoming, that's the point at which objects seem, uh, it's, it's too late. They are self-existent. They have our power, they, their power over us. We're completely merged with the object from a point of view of consciousness. And then the next stage is birth. And birth is when um, all of this actually comes into fruition. Birth is the moment of consciousness that's the end result of this whole pro process. And then, of course, what comes next is decay and death because the moment doesn't last. It doesn't keep going. And the reason death is the end is because death, the death of anything. I'm not talking about the death of a person. I'm talking about like the death of the bowl of ice cream, right? Each bite of ice cream is like, oh, it's like now I've got the ice cream. It's mine. It's mine. And then it's melted instantly and it's gone. And it's like, oh, no, now I'm back at the beginning of the 12 links because now I'm craving, I'm, I'm craving the next bite of ice cream and then the, each, that bite of ice cream goes through the decay and death phase and then I'm back in ignorance thinking well the next bite of ice cream is going to be really satisfying and then I do that until I've eaten an entire half gallon of ice cream thinking that there's there, there, at the bottom of the ice cream there's going to be the satisfaction that I'm looking for and that moment of that that death that that is what's what death is referring to in this it's that 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 very last moment of oh no now the thing is gone and i have the ignorance that if i could have the next thing that that's going to be the satisfying thing that the, the self-exist as long as i'm thinking of things as self-existent that i'm driving this process of thinking that the things are going to have the capacity for being satisfying or or not satisfying in them either if i get the thing the new car or whatever it is then like oh the satisfaction is in that or if i can get rid of the obnoxious colleague at work or whatever it is right if i can get rid of the thing i don't want then like oh the satisfaction will be there if i'm free of that um you know, it's like sometimes we move to a new town to get rid of somebody that we don't like. And then we, we unpack the truck and we move into the new place. And then we find that somehow that same person is in the new town too. It's not the same person, but it's a different person who pushes the exact same buttons. Because I think that if I get rid of that one, that particular thing, that bhava, that particular becoming, that particular birth of that particular thing has the desirable or the undesirable quality in it, the desire or desirable or undesirable characteristic in it. And if I can, if I can have it or get rid of it, then then I'll have that relief. That's ignorance. That sense that we could get the one thing we want, or we can get rid of the thing that we don't want, and then we'll have the peace. Then we'll have the satisfaction. That's the avidya that's driving the whole process. So it starts over again. Avidya, basic misunderstanding about how things exist. We think things have the svabhava of, of being pleasing or not pleasing, of being able to satisfy, satisfy us or being able to, the source of our misery. That basic ignorance 
is what drives the volitions, the karmic engine. The whole karmic engine is driven, is volition, is this urgency, this, this pre-cognitive, pre-conscious urge to, to, to have that satisfaction. That's samskara. That's what drives consciousness. Consciousness emerges from the urgency. Then that's what drives the tendency to label, to th see things as things. Nama rupa, the fourth step. Then, then we start to actually experience the world through the six sense spheres. The six sense spheres, the sense objects, the sense organs co-emerge. There are no objects independent of being perceived. And there's, there's no perceiver floating in empty space waiting to perceive something. <clears throat> Perception only exists as a relationship between the sense objects, the sense organs, the sense objects coming into conjunction. That's what creates the contact, the actual the initial experience of encountering a sense object. That's what triggers the feeling. Feeling is what, which is basic seeing things as, as pleasant or unpleasant. <coughs> Excuse me. Feeling is what leads to craving. And craving is the basic flaw after ignorance, of course, the basic flaw that we're mistakenly habitually doing, thinking that if we seeing the thing and immediately seeing the desirable or the undesirable quality in it. Clinging is then when we try to acquire the thing and or push the thing away from us in order to actually realize the desirable quality that we think is in it. That's what drives the entire process of, of, of becoming, the bhava, the seeming self-nature of the thing. And that's what drives the arisal. And then, so then... All, everything that we experience mostly is happening in these last two. The arising of things, their decay, and their disappearance. Birth, decay, and death. So the previous ten steps are all happening so quickly that we're not aware that they're happening. But we do experience birth. We do experience, like, you know, when the ice cream hits our tongue, we're experiencing, our experience of it is at that birth stage. It's already gone, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, and becoming have all happened in that micro moment. And then we experience the birth, decay, and death of the, the delicious ice cream on our tongue and as it melts and fades away. And then we're left with the, the, the ignorance at the end of the thing that we wanted fading away. So the 12 links um, are an interesting framework. Um, I, I hope that you found this useful. Um, all of the different schools of Buddhism, interestingly, have different takes on the, on the 12 links. So um, I have mostly here been um, talking about the Mahayana interpretation. So I just briefly want to talk about how, the, how the, the, a few of the main schools of Buddhism, I won't go into too much detail here, but a few of the main schools of Buddhism view the 12 links differently. 
Um, Theravada tradition, which is the old school, the original form of Buddhism based on the the oldest uh, sutras, the oldest um, canon of recorded Buddhist sutras called the Pali canon. Um, the, the Theravada tradition um, uses this to explain how suffering arises. Um, and I think that the my description of it, I think, captures this, that um, what we experience is without substantiality. We think that the things have the bhava. We think that the things have the svabhava, but they essentially are just this process happening that we're unaware, that we're mostly unaware of. Um, and then this is can be used to negate the svabhava, the self-nature of the, of the things. Um, by seeing how the desirable aspect of the thing is actually coming about through this process, through this lightning-fast process of, of perception forming from ignorance. The, the Mahayana school goes further by saying that... Um, all, all phenomena um, lack self-nature because of their relativity. Things only exist because of their interrelationships. Um, in other words, you know, because things only exist as a, as a result of them being perceived to exist, or result isn't the right word here, because they're, things only exist because our perception of them is is how they arise. Things only exist in relationship to to the to being perceived, and things only exist because they are in relationship to other things. There is no, there are no things other than the interrelationship between things. Now the. Um, The um, Madhyamaka school, which is the middle way school of Buddhism, then takes this one step further and says, and this is evidence for their emptiness. Um, the fact that they are relative, um, they, they only have validity in as much as they're being perceived and outside of being perceived, independently of being perceived, um, there is no svabhava. There is no nature of things. Things only exist their svabhava only seems to exist as a result of their being perceived to exist. And therefore, they're ultimately empty. <clears throat> so you can see how these uh, philosophical schools build on each other, right? The Theravadins are saying, okay, th things are insubstantial. Svabhavas are a result of this process. Mahayana then goes further to say that therefore things are unreal because they only exist in, in terms of their relativity. Um, their, percep their perception, their relationship between the object and the perceiver. And then the Madhyamaka, the, the emptiness school of Buddhism, goes one step further and says, and therefore things lack any kind of existence outside of their um, being perceived to exist in relationship to the perceiver, who is also empty. And then Prajnaparamita, which is what we're studying here in the, in the Heart Sutra, um, says that even the, that, that Prajnaparamita says even the 12 links lack, so, lack in existence. And, and how it does that is by saying what I've just described sounds like a sequence, right? Like I've been describing it as a sequence. They so would go through these 12 links 
very quickly, but nevertheless, they are a process. They are a sequence. They uh, exist temporarily. They go through time, right? They, they emerge through time. Prajnaparamita says that even that process of emer the seemingly emerging through time is itself a misperception. And that interdependence, this is kind of the, the evolution of these ideas, is that this interdependence is happening at all times between all things um, and, and, and it's existing, that process is happening outside of time, independently of time. So even the tendency to see things as emerging, even if we're going as subtle a level of the 12 links of interdependent origination, that even that seeming to emerge through this process is itself um, a, a, a way of categorizing things, a way of imposing temporality, a way of imposing process on something that essentially exists only as a network of interrelationships. Okay, that was kind of a mouthful. So this is, uh, so that's the 12 links of interdependent origination. And I think that, that they're really worthwhile to go into um, because they're so prevalent in Buddhist, in, in Buddhist philosophy and in different Buddhist philosophical schools. They're really worth um, um, thinking about and understanding how they work and thinking about how they work according to different um, Buddhist philosophical systems. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating about Buddhism is that it's this evolution of philosophical schools. And so we can study what each of the philosophical schools asserts and then how the other philosophical schools kind of respond to that. Um, I'm kind of, you know, it's kind of the geeky Buddhist, you know, stuff, studying the philosophy and, and thinking about the different philosophical schools. Um, it's not super useful from the perspective of Prajnaparamita because Prajnaparamita is trying to get us to this place where we are contacting this ineffable, transcendent wisdom. Um, so from a pure Prajnaparamita perspective, like the Chan school or, or the Zen school, Chan and Zen say everything that you study, everything that you learn, takes you further away from the goal. Learning more stuff, studying philosophy, memorizing texts and studying texts <coughs> just adds more confusion because it's just more discursive intellectualizing. Those, those schools both say that it's only through, it's only in the moment that you can realize emptiness. And so you should spend all of your moments attempting to find this non-dual reality to to wake up to this reality that's already around us that we're just not seeing and so the consequence then is that any new information takes us further away from emptiness um and you know that's philosophically valid obviously that that you know that makes sense from the perspective of emptiness but one of the things that we have to do especially somebody like me who's kind of likes thinking about things and and is sort of trapped in a world of ideas maybe um it's helpful for me to think through things from a lot of different perspectives because that's how i develop the confidence in my meditation practice that's how i develop the faith 
that meditation is going to take me deeper into um, this this process of awakening. Because that's ultimately the goal, right? Prajnaparamita is in a way an anti-philosophy philosophy. It's a philosophy that says everything that you think is wrong. So the only purpose of talking about all of this stuff is to get you to stop being so attached to what you think is right so that you can get to this non-dual reality that is underlying everything and that is the this consciousness without content. So we have uh, two more classes left after this. And um, in the remaining classes, we're, we're going to talk about the Four Noble Truths. And um, he talks a little bit about Nirvana. And then, of course, in the end of the text, um, has some fascinating instruction about how to practice Prajnaparamita and the sort of magical, the magical incantation, the, the magical ritual that unlocks Prajnaparamita. Um, it's kind of an unexpected twist for this text, um, so it's something to uh, something to look forward to in the in the next couple of classes. And it's customary at the end of a Buddhist teaching or Buddhist practice to reflect on how our efforts here are beneficial. Um, they're beneficial to they're beneficial to ourselves in that we are deepening our um, awareness that we're studying spiritual things that we are taking time to to study things that are going to help us improve ho- hopefully become better people um, you know one of the characteristics of interdependence is realizing that our actions have effects that our actions have effects on others and that we want to modify our behavior so that we are, and, and the way that we think, not just the way that we act, but the way that we think in order to be more loving, peaceful people. Um, because that's what the world needs to become a better place, and that's what we need to become bodhisattvas and eventually Buddhas. So when we're doing this work, we're, we're working for our own benefit in that sense. But we're also working for the benefit of others because it, as we become more skillful, more resourced, more resilient, um, less selfish and more other-oriented, <clears throat> um, one of the things that I like about emptiness is that it's very helpful for perspective-taking, thinking about things from other people's points of view, realizing that others' perspective is as valid as my own. And that helps soften my heart when I'm in conflict with somebody, realizing that even if we don't agree and I don't really understand where they're coming from, that from their point of view, their perspective is valid. That's a form of meditating on emptiness, getting out of my habitual application of my own, of my own um, tendency to see the world a certain way and creating space for other people's, the way that other people see the world to be valid in my, in, for me, valid to me. Um, and so, you know, by developing these skills and meditating on emptiness, meditating on compassion, we are able to be more available for others. And, and, that's, and that's progressive. We continue to do that through the bodhisattva path and ultimately become beings that can 
teach others perfectly and, and tirelessly and effortlessly, um, working for their benefit. And when we think about that as the outcome, then we can imagine that the karma that we're creating, the good karma, the seeds that we're planting that will ripen in the future, that, um, that that's how they're going to ripen. So dedicating the merit is a practice in which we, we imagine that we're planting these karmic seeds and that we're planting very specific seeds that are going to ripen as um, freedom for others. That, that we are put, we're planting these seeds that will ripen for others experiencing less suffering and more happiness and joy. Ultimately, Buddhas are, are reaching out to everyone at all times. And we want to have that capacity too, to lift others out of suffering. And when we make efforts in classes like this and in our practice, we can in, and set the intention that the results will, will work for that goal. Thanks for tuning in to the Mojo Hito podcast. For show notes, video, and more information, visit mojohito.com.